Now entering Nerdist.com. So Paul Ryan won't say Donald Trump's name, but will vote for him for president. And that's a problem for a lot of Americans. They just don't love the two choices. I mean, do you pick someone who's under federal investigation for using a private email server? Or do you pick someone who called Mexicans rapists, claimed the president was born in Kenya, proposed banning an entire religion from entering the U.S., mocked a disabled reporter, said John McCain wasn't a war hero because he was captured, attacked the parents of a fallen soldier, bragged about committing sexual assault, was accused of 12 women of committing sexual assault, said some of those women weren't attractive enough for him to sexually assault, said more countries should get nukes, said he would be forced the military to commit war crimes, said a judge was biased because his parents were Mexicans, said women should be punished for having abortions, incited violence at his rallies, called global warming a hoax perpetrated by the Chinese, called for his opponent to be jailed, declared bankruptcy six times, bragged about not paying income taxes, stiffed his contractors and employees, lost a billion dollar in one year, scammed customers at his fake university, bought a six-foot-tall painting of himself with money from his fake foundation, has a trial for fraud coming up in November, insulted an opponent's looks, insulted an opponent's wife's looks, and bragged about grabbing women by the How do you choose? Because it's so... It's so even. It's so even. Oh, Father, tell me, do we get what we deserve? Oh, we get what we deserve. And where down we go? Thank you guys for coming. Are you Blindspot fans? Martin? Hi. Hello. Let's talk about, um, you're in season two of Blindspot. Correct. I'm curious to hear, you, you're kind of like smack in the middle of the season right now, and I'd like to hear about what you did this week. Like, give us a look at what a showrunner does in the midst of a season, shooting has started. What did you do this week? Um, <clears throat> well, this week was a little bit of everything. Um, I, uh, you know, we, we kind of spin, let's do a day instead. Can we do a day instead? Because I think it might be, it might be a little more illuminating. So, um, uh, one random day this week, you know, you, we got up, uh, uh, we had, a, I had a notes call at nine thirty with the, with the studio. They gave some thoughts on an outline. And then, uh, then I went in and worked with our phenomenal room for, for a little bit. Uh, I then went and, uh, started, we were, you know, checking in on a cut, uh, for episode 209. We're breaking episode, we're breaking the season finale at the moment. Uh, even though we're that's a little ahead of where we are in the room wise, we can talk about that in a bit if you want. And um, uh, and then I went to a color correct uh, after checking in on the edit, and then after the color correct, I, I did a mix for the episode that will air this Wednesday, uh, and then uh, that took me to about. I don't know, 10 p.m. and I went home. <laughs> so every day is like is like a nice balance of you know. Uh, oh, and then of course, obviously checking in with set and and trying to figure out how to get an episode on budget. We were we're desperately trying to trying to get this one uh, episode 211 on on pattern, which means that it it costs what we have in the budget for the show. Is this a particularly ambitious episode? No, I mean you know we try to you know every episode. 
the interesting thing about making television is the making of it gets a little easier the more you do because you've made uh, so many mistakes that you've <laughs> learned from at that point. And so you, you have, you know, just in the writing of it, you have a better sense of what you can afford, what feels like a more expensive episode and what feels like a less expensive episode. But, you know, there's always things that, tur- you know, like be like, oh, you know what? It turns out uh, shooting at a biker bar is way more expensive than we thought or, you know... Um, uh, there's a stunt coming up that we're doing right now that's involving a lot of motorcycle, like a whole caravan of motorcycles, <laughs> and uh, it turns out every one of them has to be a stunt performer. You know, stuff like that, where you're like, well, can't this just guy be a guy that rides? Mo- oh, they all have to be stunt performers. So it's like stuff like that. You just, it's always the give and take of like, you know, it's uh, we're making an action movie every week, so you know, there's always a surprise <laughs> as to what something might cost or how dangerous something might be. That you're like, oh, that's no problem, isn't it? You can just burn down a barn. Like, that was a perfect example. I wanted to, you know, the, the end of the finale last year, I really wanted to burn down a barn. And, um, like, a real barn burner. And, uh, and, um, and I said, you know, well, we got to go find... I gave them lots of heads up. And, uh, and they came back to us. And, and you know, the, our phenomenal production team was like, well, we can't really... It's very hard to burn down a barn the way you want to do it because, you know, A there aren't a lot of people that are just like, yeah, for sure, burn down my barn. And the ones that are, those barns aren't safe to go in. You shouldn't have people in those, in or around those barns. It's lots of exposed needles and glass and stuff. So, so we had to build a barn from scratch. Like we bought a barn building kit from, from Amish country and we erected a barn uh, over the course of, you know, a couple of weeks and we shot two days in it and then burned it down. (laughs) So it seems like when you explain that to somebody, they're like, well, that's such a waste. <laughs> but this, man, this it looked the magic real, of television. It looked real cool. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Totally worth it. Yeah. It was the hottest. I was about 150 feet away from it and I got burned. So I don't understand. Like our stunt people had to run like right. It was the hottest thing I've ever been. Because it really, we have, uh, we have a guy, Drew, who's our, our special effects guy. And uh, Drew likes to over deliver. So like uh, the, that was, that was. The, one of the most dangerous, biggest things I think we've ever done. Yeah. I'm, it's interesting. I mean, you really are making an action movie every week, as you say. I, I'm curious about measuring the ambition with the practicality of that. You know, it's still a TV schedule and a TV budget, but look, you're not dumb, and you're an ambitious storyteller. So how do you, how do you find that medium? Well, for me, I mean, <clears throat> I came up on a show called Stargate, which was uh, kind of the same thing. We were trying to do an action movie every week, and, and we didn't have the money, you know, that, that I have on Blindspot necessarily. Um, and, and also with Stargate, it took place in the outer space. So we had to, you had to, like, build everything. You know, it was a lot of soundstage. So it, it was a long lead show. You couldn't just, like, come up with an idea and then hit the floor with it three days later. You needed to plan. And so for Blindspot, I take that kind of same thing. It's like we really are well ahead story-wise and action set-piece-wise. So you might not get a script until a week or so before production, which is still very early in television, mm-hmm. or a week or so before prep. But you know, like, we're giving people constant heads-up of just like, hey, this is a thing we want to do. This is a location we're going to try. And um, and then also, you know, it's, it's, it's your job as a showrunner uh, to occasionally be, like, uh, totally impractical. And totally unreasonable. Wait a minute. You know, shouldn't the showrunner be totally practical? No, no, that's most of the job. But like, I'll give you an example. Like, you know, like I had this really great idea. I had this, uh, you know, I wanted to do an episode eleven last year, which was our 
uh, our mid-season premiere, and we I knew we were going to be off for like three months, so it needed to be like a huge episode. And I had this idea because I, you know, I'm like just had a five percent of conspiracy theorists in me, and so I, I wanted to do, um, you know, that Malaysian Airlines plane that went missing. I was like, well, what if we found that Malaysian Airlines plane? And it was like, and there's a whole story about what that was about. But to do that, you needed a, a giant Malaysian Airlines plane. And every, so I, I told everyone, like, hey, I have this story. We're going to do it. There's a Malaysian Airlines plane. And everyone was like, no, you can't. You cannot. We, they don't have planes the way they – because in L.A. or Vancouver or Toronto, they have a, there's a lot of standing sets. Like, there's a lot of, like, oh, there's an airplane interior you can just go and use or, you know, or uh, – uh, but in New York, because space is so at a premium – there aren't really that those don't exist, and so everyone was like, "Well, you can't. There's just no planes. You can't get a plane." And I was like, "Well, I refuse to believe that." I was like, "You have four months. That's that's, that's enough. That's enough time. Try to get a plane." And for for three months, they were like, "It's not going to happen." I'm telling you, there's no way to get a plane. And I was like, "I don't know what to tell you. I'm writing the script, so I, I, I you know, you know, <laughs> I'm pretty pregnant with this. I've got everyone excited about this plane, and then sure enough, you know, the eleventh hour, they we found a plane. We flew it in." It was, it was. It touched down. We shot on it, on and around it for 24 hours, and it flew away. So I mean, so occasionally you have to be uh, imp- impractical to like push the edge of what is capable on the show. Well, it sounds like you have amassed a team that can sort of rise to your ambitions and that the the vision that the room comes up with. Yeah, and also you just can't be an asshole about it. like you can't do that every week. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like you have to you have to have shows that you know are producible. And and I think what comes with experience is uh, um, especially in the first season of a show, you know, is believing people when they tell you that it it can't be done. Because there are times when they're like, no, it can't be done, and you should just listen to them because they're they're right. And there are times when they say, no, it can't be done, and you're like, well, I know it's not easy and i know um but but like our crew is like they really go they you know we couldn't do the show that we're doing without a team that just like truly over delivers and this this year it's been the inverse where they're actually pushing us to like come up with crazier crazier ideas because they they feel like they they're they're really in a in a in a good flow with them Can, can you give us an example of that uh, I know, like, we've only seen a couple of episodes thus far, and this will come out in a week or two, but um, some idea of where where the team helped push the room to come up with story. Uh, the, 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 I can't think of an, an exact example just off the top of my head, um, but they, for instance, what they did was they, they put together a locations binder of, like, amazing locations that you would think were, like, totally outside of our price range. And so we have custom-built episodes to be in those, uh, in those environments that you would, we would never in a million years dream that we could afford, for instance. It feels like that kind of challenge uh, is right for you. Like, you seem like a puzzle guy. And I don't know where I get this, but <laughs> that seems sure. like a way to sort of create story within these certain interesting parameters. Well, television is... Like, you have a very finite box. It's not like sitting down and making a movie and being like, well, I'm just going to dream my biggest dream, and we're going to build this whole thing. Like, I know exactly how much every episode needs to cost. And more importantly, I know how much the whole season needs to cost. So the episodes can go up and down, but at the end of the year, like, I, I guess start getting frantic phone calls if, like, the, you know, we start to tick too, too high into the red. So, um, so it's all about balance. It's about knowing, you know, like for instance, our first few episodes this year were enormous. I mean, like there were, uh, there were huge, they had like giant 
you know, we had this huge motorcycle chase. We had this enormous helicopter sequence that involved, you know, blowing up uh, like a small Af- Afghanistan town and a helicopter. And so, so you go, those, those episodes are more expensive. But then you know, as a storyteller, you're just like, well, but I'm doing the Rich.com bottle episode in episode seven. I'm going to save $400,000 from that episode. So I can spend that $400,000 on these episodes. So it's all about, it's just about like, Resource management. That's why I'm like pretty good at Settlers of Catan. Like it's just about the whole game. It's about resource management, whether it be money or brain power or human hours or wheat. Yeah, or wheat or sheep or brick. Uh, I can. I'm. 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 That's that's for whatever reason. I I I I have gravitated to be able to work at these kind of like macro levels. Has that come from experience in, in coming up through you know the various jobs that you had in the business? Yeah, I mean, I I don't, you know, like I've been making things uh, since I was a kid, you know, like I, um, uh, and so you just kind of, you figure out your own thresholds as you start to grow. You like as a kid, you know, your ambitions are way way outside of what you're able to produce, and so you start to just figure out like how to like well, how can I get someone to help me on Saturdays if you know like if I what can I do for them to get them to show up to do this? So I mean, like it's all it, it is about it's about finding a cohesive team and motivating a cohesive team to make something. You know, let's talk about the team of writers that you have put together. Um, you were telling me earlier that it's it's basically or mostly the same group from the first season. Yeah, absolutely. That's great. Uh, that means they're happy, too. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, they can't leave. I have them on contract That's for three fair. years. That's fair. <laughs> they don't have a choice. Um, how, did you, how did you put this group together? Uh, what were you reading? What were you... Was there stuff you were particularly looking for in sample scripts? I don't read, which is going to be a shock to you. Like, I do not read people before I meet them. Um, Why do we bother? Well, no, I read them after, but okay. I think it's a waste of time. So how are you finding because, out about them? Because uh, Here's the thing. that You can have like 100 scripts, right? And then you get in the room with somebody, and you're in the room for them for four minutes, and you're like, I can't work with you. I can never be in there. It's a very close quarters job, you know? And so not to get like all, but it's like vibe is one of the main things you're looking for in a writer, you know? So, um, so why, why read a script and be like, Oh, this, 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 this woman's an amazing writer. And then you get in the room and be like, Oh my God, I could never, that's, we have just have different energies, you know? So, um, so, but because of that, I'm able to meet a lot more people. Mm-hmm. So I, 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 I was looking for people with procedural experience because I didn't feel like I had procedural experience. Um, and then I realized kind of halfway through the season, I was like, oh, this is just Stargate's a procedural. Star Trek is a procedural. Like, those are, sure. you don't think about them those ways, but it's like. When you strip everything away. When you strip everything away, those are closed-ended stories, you know? So um, uh, so th- how to think about those stories was actually not as foreign to me as I had, was worried about. But I, I tried to stack the room with people that had done a lot of procedurals because I felt like I'm pretty confident that I could do the character arcs and the emotional stuff. Um, and then also you're just looking for, like, people with, uh, uh, you know, uh, with a diverse experience base that's different from yours. You're looking for not antagonists, but you're looking for people that are not going to agree with you, you know? And I assume you mean diverse life experience rather than writing experience. No, both. I mean, sure. you know, like, life and writing experience. Like, I, you're looking to fill in the gaps that, uh, for, that, that you personally have, you know? And it's like trying to throw a great dinner party every day. You know, you have ten people in the room. You want those people to uh, get along and compliment each other and contrast each other. Uh, and, and, and so it's like, yeah, it's making like, it's like being a giant bouillabaisse. 
But really, it comes down to like you just I don't know. It's like casting. Like you get into the room with somebody, and uh, because I don't read them when it's going well, I'm like, fuck. I hope they get right. Um, this is Did going find, really good. <laughs> Did you find? You know, after really hitting it off with someone that you would read their script and you didn't like it or didn't yeah. respond to it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And those people didn't get the job. No, no, no. <laughs> no, no, no. No. Because at the end of the day, to be honest, I find um, sample material uh, to be 50% useful. Mm -hmm. Because not that I believe that, you know, like, let me put it this way. If you're writing a spec and uh, you've developed it through anything or uh, um, you could have had an enormous amount of help with that, you know, whether it, you know, someone is actually helping you rewrite it or your friends are giving you so many notes or this is something you've done over the course of two years. So it's a really polished thing. And then you get into the room and the, the pressure cooker of making a TV show. And sometimes, you know, you just like, you're like, I've all I've read an amazing spec from someone. And then they come back with an episode of a show that I'm running. And you're just like, well, this is garbage. Like, this is like, this is real sad. And, um, uh, and so, so yeah, so I, I just find like at the end of the day, it's always a flyer, regardless of how that material is. Absolutely. I mean, like you say, like casting in many ways. Yeah, exactly. Um, I'm curious to hear, I mean, this sort of speaks to what your expectations of your room are uh, on in sort of a nuts and bolts level. What do you want from them? Well, I'm looking for two different things depending on the level of writer that you are. So, um, you know, I'm I'm a very uh, hands-on producer. I believe that the writers should be involved all throughout prep and all throughout production, all throughout post. Um, and so, we actually send our, our writers for all of prep and all of post to New York. So that's that's a three and a half week commitment. So you're looking for somebody that a is willing to do that. Most people have families here. They, they, they don't really want to leave and not that our producers want to leave their families. Uh, but I mean like they're okay for two they, episodes. They have a support system around them that allows them to do something like that. Um, and then, and then B you're looking for writers that at that level that are competent producers, like not, I don't need them to just write great scripts and be great in the room, but I, I actually need them to be like very good nuts and bolts with, you know, supporting our crew and, and, uh, uh, helping and, and, and supporting our cast and then dealing with numbers, you know, being able to read, being able to have a producer, a line producer come to you and say like, Hey, we're $50,000 over budget and kind of knowing how to pull that out of the script without breaking it is, is, is like an incredible skill to have. And then from the junior level people, it's really their job. It's your job as a, as a staff writer or story editor to make yourself indispensable and to find a niche in the room that you're needed in and then make it so it's impossible to fire you. What are some of those niches that they can find? Like for in, and, for example, when you were that level writer, what, what did you find worked for you? Uh, well, first for our show, like I don't like thinking of cases. Like it's just not fun for me. I don't like thinking of a cases. I like I have very strong opinions about what are good ones and bad ones. But it's like the idea generation on just like coming up with a cases is like no, it's no fun for me. So, um, so for instance, you know, we like for instance, we had two writers last year from uh, the Warner Brothers screenwriting program, which is an extraordinary program. Um, uh, uh, Kristen Layden and Rachel Karis Love, and they. They came in so hyper prepared with like, you know, five deep A cases when you needed them. And we're always like, you know what? I don't like this. Do we need a new A case? They would always be ready with like, they were ready all the time to, be, to, to meet that expectation. And then also they, you know, everyone in the room starts to find what they're great at in contributing to the breaking of a story. And that's, there's a lot of special skills. And you're looking for somebody that's not just like a logic cop. 
Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? That's not just like, well, I don't think they do that. And you're like, well, okay, but <laughs> like, that's not how it would be in the real world. And you're like, great. It's so easy to break the stuff apart. And to a certain extent, that's my job. Sure. You know what I mean? And so, like, I don't need people to just, like, constantly naysay. I do need them to naysay and then say, but here's a better idea, you know? So, um, and there's a there's a huge difference. How did you, in the first season, start to paint a target for your writers? Well, we, I came in, I mean, like, the arc was extremely important to me. So, like, I knew that this was a show that was going to be very arced out, that there was a puzzle in the middle of it, that the puzzle needed to make sense. All of the mythology, so to speak, that we were doing week to week needed to make sense. So the first three weeks of the show, we broke the entire, like, we basically broke all the way to episode 22, even though we didn't have that order. (laughs) I was just cocky. And, uh, um, And so we had to, so that's how we painted the target. So we got everyone on the same page knowing, like, this is, okay, this is where we're going. This is where the first season ends. This is with some of the tentpole episodes, like the mid-season finale, the mid-season premiere, what has to happen mythology-wise for them, the new characters that we would incorporate. So we had a very kind of, you know, a thousand-mile view of the show going into the week. And then another thing I do on first-season shows, and I've fallen off on a bit this year just because of time, but um, we rewrite. I don't rewrite on my own. We rewrite as a group. Much like comedy would do. We throw it up on a big screen and we go through and we argue about every line, every comma, every sentence, you know, and um, uh, figure out like, well, what is this show together, you know? Because, you know, as a younger writer, when I was rewritten, uh, for the most part, you, you read it and you're like, oh, that is better. But you can't really put your hands around why necessarily. And a lot of times it felt like, I was like, well, this is just different like it's just a sideways move why did they rewrite that so rewriting it in a group like that whether you're a senior writer or a junior writer you can get on the board real quick like if you have a great joke or a line or and it it allows everyone to start to narrow in on what the voice of the show is as a team and so when this when the when whether you're a senior writer or a staff writer when you go to write your script you you have now this wealth of this volume of knowledge of like what has worked and has not worked. And so the, your first script should be in a lot better than it would if you were doing it in, in a vacuum. That's a, it's a smart system. Uh, and again, you don't hear a lot of hour long shows working that way. How did you come to this? Had you worked on shows that did that? No, I had not done it. Um, we, I, it came out of, when I was working on the LA complex, it was a very small room and, and inevitably was just three of us. It was myself, uh, Brendan Gall and Aaron Abrams. Brendan is still working with me on, on blind spot. And, um, uh, and Aaron Abrams is one of, one of our guest stars always, but, um, um, we wanted to, I was going to direct almost the entire first season of the LA complex. So we had to write all the scripts, uh, far in advance uh, of doing so. So, um, and so we, we decided we're like, well, let's just do a polish. Like, let's just do a joke polish essentially with all of us in the room. And those joke polishes ended up taking like two or three days an episode because we were just, we ended up just rewriting everything, having these really wonderful arguments and like (laughs) bending the show in interesting and strange way and not just letting a line pass that didn't make sense, but not letting a scene pass that maybe somebody had a bump on. And it was a real painful process 
because it's rough to have your script kind of eviscerated by your friends like that. But it, the scripts came out so much better that I just can't imagine ever not doing that again. That's really cool. And I think it, it's a good lesson for other writers and showrunners. That I mean, and, and part of the job is collaboration. So much of the job is collaboration. It's all collaboration. It is like this whole idea of auteur-driven television is like, is, I, I just don't, I don't get it. And to be honest, it's failed more times than it's worked, in, in my opinion, when, it, when they are truly given total creative control over a show. So, um, you know, like, I, I see the, the showrunner position as less of a dictator role and more of a curator. Like, it's, my, it's not my idea to come up with all the great ideas, but it's my idea to, like, recognize them, <laughs> if that makes well, sense. Well, to sort of guide the... Yeah, to, like, the keep the quality control. Like, you know, people give Warhol a ton of shit because, like, they're like, he didn't even, he didn't even do those things. You're like, yeah, but they were... It was part of his community that he built together. So it's like, not that I'm Warhol, but we are making, we're both making like real poppy stuff and it's taking a giant community to do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you mentioned LA Complex, which you know I loved. Oh, thank you. Let's, uh, did you guys watch this show, LA Complex? You look so, puzzled. No one has. No one's seen that. So LA puzzled. Complex. Listen, uh, if you love Blind Spot, that's fair, right? I don't know that it is. <laughs> uh, LA Complex was, was Martin's first show. Yeah. Right? Uh, it's a great show. It was on the CW. Uh, yeah. First season. Yeah. First two seasons, yeah. Two seasons. Yeah, yeah. Oh, maybe I haven't watched both. No, no there are only yeah. 19 episodes between okay. both seasons, so you're fine. Um, and it is great, and you can find it online and stuff. Um, but Blindspot is very different. Sure. Was this a concerted effort taking out a very different show after L.A. Complex? L.A. Complex was sort of a, a soap opera. Yeah, it was a soap opera. Well, I've had a weird career. You know, like I did, um, I started on Stargate, which was like a swashbuckling action hour. And then I, I made a, um, like an adult sex comedy movie. And then I, then I went to Bored to Death uh, on HBO, which was like a half hour. We call it a noir-rotic. It's a neurotic noir, um, uh, which is very different than anything. And then I did a teen soap at, at the CW, and, and now I'm doing, you know, a giant uh, action hour. So I, for me, it all feels like a very straight line, <laughs> you know, because you don't want to, you don't like to repeat yourself as a writer. You want to try to do new things. Like, you don't want to, after I had done the LA Complex, like, the last thing in the world I wanted to do was, like, another soap, basically. And, um, and so, you know, no, it came out of, to be totally honest, like, I, I had a deal. I was, I was really excited about this, another CW idea that I had that wasn't exactly a soap. Um, but I had a deal at Warner Brothers that was a two-script deal. And so I had to think of another <laughs> script. And this image, the image of the opening just came to me one morning of this woman uh, coming out of a bag in the middle of Times Square covered in tattoos. And I was like, well, yeah, that's, a, that's something. I should go, let me go write on that for a while. Let's see where this goes. And, um, have, you, and have you since then paused to take apart where that image came from? Yes. I, it was... I mean, it's really boring, but I mean, it was it was kind of an amalgam of four or five ideas I was working on at the time. I had this idea about a private investigator that lost her memory and had to investigate her own life, essentially, which is like sounds like a thing, but isn't. And then and then I and then I'd been desperately trying to figure out how to do a treasure hunt show, like an actual like Goonies yeah. show for years. And um, um, and so they kind of just like. And I was like, well, this woman with no memory, how would she how would she have a connection to someone that would be interesting? And I was like, well, what if there was a tattoo on her body that was something permanent that was about somebody else? And then that could be her one connection. 
and then was thinking about like, okay, well, where's a good place to, where's a good place to like have her wake up, I guess. And I was trying to think, you know, it's a big network TV show. You're trying to outdo each other with these teasers every year. And, um, and I had shot, I was thinking like, well, what's something that I know I can do that's amazing. And I'd shot and bored to death in Times Square. And it's actually not that hard to shoot in Times Square. It's a secret with like Times Square. And, um, and so I had this like, and I was like, oh, well, what if she woke up in Times Square? And then for whatever reason, I was like, well, what if she had, what if it was more than just a name on her body? Like, what if she had like a whole, a treasure map on her body? And then that kind of, so it was, again, it was just a bunch of ideas that kind of all, that weren't working on their own that kind of came together and worked. And then how did you start to, and I'm sure this is sort of well-trod, uh, but I'm curious to hear how you started to form the series from that. Like, that suggests a sort of procedural element, right? We can kind of see the episodes if there's a treasure map. Well, it's so so funny, because if you watch shows now, it's like some sort of fantastical, like, a woman with no memory with tattoos on her body, well, she's got to work with the FBI. (laughs) Or like, uh, the Frankenstein monster came back, well, he's got to work with the FBI. (laughs) Uh, Lucifer is stuck on Earth. He's got to work with the FBI. So there is a, you eventually just have to be like, well, they got to work with the FBI at some point. How is she going to, how is she going to work with the FBI? <laughs> That's how TV is. That's what TV is about now. It's about, everyone's about working with the FBI. So, so Scarecrow um, and Mrs. King. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Way. Everyone will, you get there eventually, Mr. Robot will start working with the FBI. Like it's just the inevitable road everyone takes. Game of Thrones is going to be a hard bend, but we'll get there. They're smart guys. Um, they, uh, so, so and I knew I wanted to do some sort of procedural thing. But for me, like, the, to be honest, um, I'd been watching a lot of The Good Wife and uh, was, like, incredibly addicted. I was super late to the game. Everyone was like, you got to watch it. It's amazing. And I kind of watched all of The Good Wife in, like, you know, two or three weeks. And for me, it was so illuminating because it was doing all the character stuff that I like to do inside of a 22-episode arc, and it was doing it more effective. Because one of the problems we were running into with the LA Complex was, like, everyone had slept with everyone, everyone had known everyone's secret, everyone had been, like, the sca- you're, it's a scandal machine. So, like, you know, like, you know, like I, I promise you, and I love the television show Scandal, but, like, at some point, Scandal's going to have... Like, do you remember, like, when Felicity, at a certain point, like, had real magic... In it, and it's like there's time travel and things. Because, like, at a certain point on a soap opera, you just run out of stuff. You just have to be like, well, what if that girl that's into Wiccan is actually a witch? You know, and you're like, sure, why not, man? And so, um, uh, like, because TV chews up story. It chews up story, it chews up relationship, it chews up secrets, right? So so I was looking, and so what The Good Wife was able to do, what I was able to see is, like, how malleable the stories... Like, there were episodes of The Good Wife that were 30 minutes of character stuff and 15 minutes of case. But then when they were, like, needed to kind of pause it on the character thing, they could be like, someone's about to be executed. It's a death row case. we got to do it right now. There's no time to talk, Josh! You know, so it's like, so you could you could... You could change the shape of the story you told every week in a way that would allow you to do really interesting character stuff and not burn it out. Yeah. And so, um, so for me, that was what Blindspot... Blindspot was an attempt to replicate kind of that good wife model in a very different, obviously, type of vibe and way. Like, we're an action show. They're a, a legal procedural. Right. But um, It has those elements that can those, shrink or grow. As that's right. Like, some, ep- some of our episodes are huge, huge character arcs. Some of them aren't, you know? And um, it was a way for me to get excited about doing because like i you know like everyone's real snobby about network tv you know like everyone's like well network tv i don't watch network tv man like i only watch amazon and um uh and like that's like the shows that those people are making 
or that I have made, you know, like those are phenomenal shows and they're great shows. But I think it would be a mistake to like, like there's a case to be made that like, like Chuck Lorre doesn't get anywhere near the attention that like Matt Weiner does. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And arguably Chuck Lorre has his pulse on the American public more than Matt does. And Matt is a genius, you know? So it's like, it's so I, I really, I really, you know, as a writer, have always loved, uh, you know, as a viewer, there's always been network TV shows that have gotten me so excited. They're like the blockbusters of our industry. So, so as a writer, it was like, I kind of felt like oh, I'd be fun to try to do what was, what does my version of this look like, you know, and, um, and that's what Blindspot is. That's really cool. And I think, you know, this may feel like an overstatement to you, but I don't think it's wrong that Blindspot is, helping to bring back that kind of TV. I mean, I think the success of the show and the way people are responding to it yeah. is reminding us that this is the TV we grew up loving. Yeah, it's so fun. I mean, like, also part of it is, like, you know, it's rough out there in the world today, guys. Like, it is, it's, it's like, kind of, uh, it's kind of, you know, I feel like we are living in, like, some sort of alternate reality, like the butterfly, like we're, we're in like the alternate time. Someone went back in time to fix something and like stepped on a butterfly and all of a sudden, like, you know, Dr. Huxtable is a rapist and like Donald Trump's about to be president. Right. There's so an it's awesome like, version of 2016. <laughs> yeah, that we're exactly. not living like in. something went wrong. Somebody <laughs> fucked something up in the past and like it's had terrible repercussions on our future. And so uh, it almost makes me believe like, yep, time travel is a real thing. So, um, uh, so, you know, I think kind of this escapist fun television that uh, um, is, is as long as, it's, like, I think the L.A. complex reverberated with, with critics so much because it was wholly um, uh, a, a, a teen soap, but it was, like, not stupid, yeah. you know? And so, like, just because something is pop doesn't mean it has to be dumb. And, and you can never underestimate, you know, your audience. There's, you know, 10 million people watch the show a week, and I, I think it's because it, there is a complexity in the storytelling um, that's that's there if you want it, and it's also that you don't have to. There's still a case every week if you don't. But there's also something. I mean, I think a viewer can see through bullshit, right? And I think that we see that you love story and you love characters and you yeah. love emotions. You're still getting to do that soap opera. Yeah, uh, but well, every show it has these bells and whistles. Every show really is a soap opera. Down like there's no. TV show that you love that's not a soap opera when you get right down to it because that's that's what that's what the story format is it's a week to week you know you you watch a show because you care about the characters there are very few shows that you watch because like oh the plot is so amazing you know um, uh, you do it because like it services these these phenomenal characters all right I want to make sure we have uh, time for questions from you guys do you have questions for Martin so um, with Blindspot the uh, the tattoos seem that seemed like quite a complex thing to do. Yeah. Um, what was your, your planning for all the tattoos seemed to take place throughout the entire story arc that you've done. It's very fascinating. Can you talk about your, your, the process of the tattoo um, plot? Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. That, that's a great question. And the, I'm curious about the design, too. Like, yeah. what's planned? How do you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, the the interesting thing is, like, people have burned, been burned so much by high-concept pilots. Like, this is the highest of high-concept pilots, you know? And um, uh, so that when you pitch them now, you know, they want to know. They're like, all right, but 
Who is she? What's going on? Why do they tattoo her? What? Are, so I had to come up with all of the like, I, like the story that will end at a certain point is something that we've known since the pitch, you know. So it 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 was an enormous amount of work that would have been so frustrating to do if the show didn't get picked up, and and then it was about, uh, you know, designing something for her body that was going to look feminine and sexy and and cool. And then burying exactly that, a lot of plot on it. So there were things in it from the work that we had done that were like, well, we know we have to touch this, this, and this. And we worked with this guy named David Kwong, who's a uh, uh, the New York Times puzzle expert and and uh, a crossword guy and a magician. And so he's kind of like a he's a he's a genius when it comes to like creating these things. So with our staff and me and 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 the the team at Berlanti, we kind of crafted this suit or this you know this 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 design for her that a had a lot of story that we knew we had had room to like inch in a tattoo or two if we got into trouble. And then also there were, uh, there were some like, again, like generic ones that we could like, there's a thumbprint on her that we haven't used yet, but like, I'm sure we can get to that if we need to, you know, or, or, uh, or, uh, a number sequence that, you know, is like very easy to just tweak to build into something else or a barcode or a thing, you know, like, so there were, there were like, or a drone, you know, which we ended up using immediately actually. So it's like these, there are pieces of the puzzle uh, that can be generic enough for us to build on, and then there are the ones that we of the story we know we have to tell that have been on there since the beginning. If that makes any sense. But it was, I mean, like you know, this show got picked up in January. We started shooting in in March, so the design process on that was like pretty. I had been keeping this like, you know. Uh, what could only be uh, uh, referred to as like a serial killer's amount of tattoo art <laughs> around my house, uh, just like having like I had a big lookbook of like stuff that I wanted to do, and and so we hired a graphic designer, and then hired this company called uh, Tinsley that you know, it made the initial tattoos, and and so then with 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 in, in consort with us and and David and everybody, we kind of shaped this amazing thing and i hadn't realized how nervous i was like the first test we did the camera test we did of her i just felt like a million pounds rise from my shoulders because i i hadn't realized how important that was going to be to the show like if it looked dumb how how the show was going to be over so that first test was um was really a surreal experience yeah uh other questions follow-up yes you, you can get them this time so the tattoos that you have that you have throughout your your house, you, you have a show bible that um, that has all these tattoos. In yeah, it. we have we have. Uh, so it's really the only workplace where it's totally appropriate to have naked pictures of one of your coworkers up on the wall. Uh, we have two giant life size images of Jamie in the in the writer's room, and then we have a thick binder of. Uh, all of the tattoo designs independent of each other, so removed from the overlay, because they're kind of right on top of each other. So removed from the overlay, and then uh, that's one section, and then the other section is uh, where they are placement-wise on her body. Wow. Yeah. I'm probably not supposed to ask a question. You're allowed. I work here, but I would like to know <laughs> two things. Um, one is a little tiny question, which is how long does that take in makeup to get Jamie ready for those? It must be intense. And this is the real question I have. Sorry to interrupt. Is um, 
as a as a creator of a show, would you say it's more desirable to be the showrunner as well? Or would you like I, I never know with creative if this is something you want to like birth an idea and then just let it go. But other people are in charge yeah. of executing it. Or would you rather hang on to it the whole time? And it's a lot of work, but you really get to realize it the way you envisioned. Um, okay, to answer the first question, um, the full body tattoo makeup takes about seven and a half hours. And, uh, and she's got to be standing for most of it. So we, uh, it's, it's very, she just stands there pretty, pretty much totally naked and just has three people. They're essentially like, uh, Cracker Jack tattoos, like without the, the shiny stuff on top. So they like, they put them on with water. Um, so we don't do that a lot. Uh, and then to be honest, over the course of last year, we, we, we have, there's probably, uh, and this is not an exaggeration, 15 different application types of like how we do the tattoos now. And so her typical daily look, which is like the, the neck and the hands is like 20 minutes. So it's down to like very reasonable amount of time. And then occasionally she'll have to build out to more and more. And then when, uh, I don't imagine when you sold the show, there was talk of bringing in a different showrunner, but have you been in that situation? No, thankfully I I've been, you know, typically when you create a show and you don't run it, um, it's for one of, you know, two or three reasons, three reasons, let's say. Uh, one, uh, you just don't get along with everybody so great. And, uh, Sometimes they let you run that. And they, no, no, and they, and they decide, like, hey, uh, hey, get out of here. Uh, and then you say, like, you're leaving for creative differences, and they let, they bring someone else in, and they, they run the show. Uh, the other reason is, is like, uh, like a Dan Fogelman, for instance, like, he literally has so many shows on TV. Or Greg. I, I want, or Greg, yeah, or, or Greg. You know, Greg still is a very hands-on showrunner, though. So, I mean, like, um, that you just, like, you're like, well, uh, or like, for instance, Whitney Cumming had a thing, you know, where she sold two pieces, and then they both went to pilot, and then they both went. And so she had to choose, she decided to stay on Whitney, and then two broke girls, they found somebody else to come in and write and show run it, so they kind of ran with that. And then the other, the other typical reason is, like, if you're, you have a great idea, and everybody loves it, but you just don't have, you know, like, these shows are, like, $100 million to, to pull off, so it's, like, you know, it's a lot of other people's money. And so, if you're green enough that they might just be like, listen, this is a great idea, but why don't we put you with a showrunner? And, uh, and then with the, with the, with a, with an eye to eventually you'll take over in the second or third season, but like you need somebody, we need somebody that we can trust to make sure that you don't, you know, you don't make all, like it's a very complicated thing to make a TV show. So, um, uh, um, uh, so yeah, so that's that's it. Yeah, and to sort of drill drill down on that question a little more, like the second situation, best case scenario, right? I'm busy running my other show. <laughs> the third one is it can go either way, and we've seen it go really well. We've it's tough. I mean, you know, it's a tough thing to it's a tough thing to you know. Here's the thing: television is a collaborative meeting medium. Like it's the sh- it says created by Martin Garrow in big font because. I, you know, I contractually obligated to have that credit, but the reality is, is it's, it's like, it truly is not my show, you know, like it is our show. It is, it, you know, if you're, if you're looking for, uh, again, like the auteur thing just doesn't work. One of the things I love about television is it is a, it's a collective, you know, you have, uh, you have a ton of writers, you have 10, there are 10 writers that work on this show. There are, there will probably be at the end of this, you know, 18 directors. Um, uh, a dozen of producers. You have 
you know, a core cast of about 15, a crew of just over 300, you know, it's, um, a lot of people are putting their fingerprints over it. And, uh, um, it's sort of your job to like give them, we, I know that I'm doing my job when they feel like blind spot is their show that they're not servicing my vision, that we're all building this show together. And at the end of the day, someone has to, like, be there in case the tiebreakers are to, like, <laughs> right. you know, fire jerks and stuff. <laughs> but, uh, uh, um, but for the most part, like, that's your, your, your job is to, like, give people, find the right people, and then give them the freedom to, like, really elevate the material. And, and you're doing it on the show. Congrats. Uh, let's just wrap up, as we always do, by asking you, what are you watching on television? I know you are a big television fan. I'm a big television and, fan. And uh, you also have to run a show, so you don't have a lot of time. But what are you making I'm a little behind. Um, so I think Survivor's still the greatest show on television. I think right? It's, it's so good. Probst is here. He is? Yes. Gotta go, guys. Sorry. Gotta end <laughs> this. Gotta go find Probst. Get weird around Probst. Uh, Jeff Probst is the uh, most underrated on-air personality in all of television. There I said it. Um, so I did 90 minutes with Probst. You he's did? the only, I think, non-writer that I've had on the writer's panel. Crush, I wasn't there. But he's the showrunner of Survivor, yeah. so he really is creating the show. It was an amazing conversation. He's real good. Uh, love Survivor. Um, uh, I'm pretty into Westworld. Would like to see Great. where would like to see where it goes. Yeah. Reserving judgment until the final episode. <laughs> I hope there will be some. A lot of people some, say that. I, well, you know, it's very easy, as, especially someone that's making a public show. Like, it's very easy to like the first <laughs> act of like, well, what's going on? It's really easy to just like churn that up to like actually have satisfying reveals at the end is is the tough part. But I'm I'm really enjoying the ride so far. And then I finally just got caught up on the Americans, which is one of my favorite shows. I watched the fourth season, which is uh, really super fantastic. And then I just watched the first episode of Fleabag, which is like outrageously amazing. And then uh, I like Red Oaks. I like uh, what else? Do you guys know Red Oaks? It's really good. Yeah. On Amazon, it's a really fun comedy. I got onto it because uh, with this actor that we that I've known for years, Anna Sesmer, who's who plays Rich dot com on the show, he's one of the leads on that show, and it is like it's they're they're really it's a really smart, funny show that is like taking some chances and and. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, there's a little bit of uh, Black Mirror. Obviously, we're real excited about it at the the Garrow household, and uh, I made I just made my dad watch an episode of Black Mirror, and he was like, "This isn't a horror thing, right?" I was like, "No, no, it's not horror. It's not horror." And then it was like the episode that was so awful and gruesome. So I really burnt I really burnt Black Mirror for my dad. Uh, um, but um, uh, so yeah, these are good answers. Those are all good great answers. Shows. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Ben. This has been a real treat. Thank you for being here. Thank you guys for all being here. Thanks to EW. Now leaving Nerdist.com. 